Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. Varla Ventura with us. And uh, last year, of course, she wrote the book, The Paranormal Parlor. What is it about these ghosts that people just love? Well, I think we certainly have a shared love of being scared. There's something about the idea that at any minute, Something could, you know, reach out from under the bed, or um, you know, crawl in the window, or snatch you. It's it's a it's a little bit of a different fear than a lot of the fears that we have in modern society about, you know, global warming and um, major catastrophes and what the government is doing and things along those lines. So I think with when we have the focus on the paranormal or the ghosts or the sort of unknown. It gives us a kind of communal thrill, and I think that's why people love to, you know, watch horror movies together mm-hmm. or um, share ghost stories around the fire. It it certainly gets your heart rate up, and it can be actually a very intimate bonding experience to go through something like that. And um, it's also it can be very cathartic in many ways because you know if you make it through the night, <laughs> you then you're then you're good to go and you can feel stronger for it. When you were writing the book, the paranormal parlor, did you come across any stories that scared the living daylights out of you? Well, I'm I'm pretty hard to to scare in that way. Um, I don't have a lot of stories that scared me to the point where I couldn't sleep at night. Um, but there were a couple of stories that I had been told, and and I hope that I captured how scary they were in the telling. Um, even in the light of day, one of the stories that was recounted to me uh, was a good friend of mine who talked about this. Uh, I, call, I call the story the thing that moans in the woods. To this day, we do not know what this thing that was moaning in the woods was. Um, at first, he thought it was a wounded animal. At first, then he thought maybe it was a joke someone was playing on him. And he pretty quickly realized that whatever it was, whatever sound it was making, was coming closer and closer to his cabin. And, of course, I'm being told this story when I'm going to sleep in that cabin. So alone, right? So it's like, okay, this, this pretty much set the stage for um, me being... It, that that was a story that I asked him to retell me multiple times because I think it, it did actually scare me, and I wanted to see if I could handle hearing it <laughs> and make it through the night. And um, I think one one thing that happens... I think this happens to, to me, and I actually think it happens to a lot of people that sometimes the retelling or the rethinking of the story is scarier than the actual experience because many people can attest when they have had a paranormal experience, your first reaction is not to like run screaming. It's often disbelief or your rational mind steps in and is trying to explain it away and so it's not until sort of after it's happened or partway into it, and there, you know, it's not, very few paranormal experiences last hours and hours. But you, you kind of, you're in that moment. You're just kind of dealing with it. You're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna handle this situation. Your mind just sort of kicks into this survival mode, 
and it's later when you shut and bolt the door, right? That's when you, and you realize what has happened. That's when you actually can start to get scared. And, and that's why I think the retelling is often scarier than the experience itself. Now, that's not to say that people haven't had terrifying experiences that scared them right there on the spot. But it's often more, your, your initial reaction in those situations is usually just one of, you, you know, you're, you're trying to have a practical approach because most people's logic just kicks in immediately. You don't say, oh, well, that's obviously a ghost. You say, okay, is that my cat? Is that my dog? Is that a branch? Is that the wind? All of the things that go through your mind. Now, this can all take place in the span of you know seconds, really, before you realize that you can't explain it. But I think that that's why the retelling of stories becomes is so precious because that's how it becomes, you know, that's, that's where the, the real scare comes in. Because then you can impart the fear that you weren't willing to admit you had in the moment. You can actually admit to that when you're telling the story to someone. And I understand Mark Twain had a hand in this novel? So there is a, um, a, a novel that was channeled via Ouija board. And so it is claimed that Mark Twain, the ghost of Mark Twain, contacted this woman and became a um, con- and she became a conduit for his spirit. That's really what I would call a ghost writer. <laughs> that is the ultimate ghost writer. And, you know, she made a, fa- she made a, a big mistake. The, the book actually was pulled from publication um, and it, it, the publisher was sued by the daughter slash the estate of Samuel Clemens and his publisher. And it, what happened is she, in her subtitle, she mentioned Mark Twain. Well, Mark Twain is a pen name, and that pen name was owned by the publisher. They had the rights to publish under that name, Mark Twain, anything that he wrote. So it actually ended up going all the way, this was in 1917, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it was really, there were some really funny headlines about it from the time, like, you know, uh, uh, Channeler, uh, Ghost Channeler goes to the Supreme Court, and Ghost of Twain versus, you know, the um, United States Supreme Court. And really what it came down to was, was copyright infringement that she was claiming that it was him and she was using his name to garner attention and book sales. And she didn't have any right to do that. So it really wasn't about whether or not they believed it was him or what she had channeled or what the work was. It really kind of came down to that that copyright that the publisher owned. And it, it, it was actually a drawn-out lawsuit. Now, in the book that you wrote, Paranormal Parlor, Ghost Seances and tales of true hauntings. What, what, what are some of your favorite stories? Well, one of my favorite stories um, is certainly, uh, a, well, I, I, I did include quite a, quite a number of personal experiences in the book, and I didn't intend to do that, actually. I was intending to, as I always do, collect other people's things and then, you know, write a little intro to the chapter. Like a Reader's Digest version. Yeah, yeah, the kind of books I loved reading when I was a kid. And with the first two books, The Book of the Bazaar and Beyond Bazaar, I certainly did more of that. Um, for whatever reason, I, just w- I was taking that sort of more journalistic approach. And with this book, I realized as I was 
putting it together that um, this was the place and time to weave my own stories into it, my own experiences. Um, Because I used to think, well, I haven't really had that many. You know, I haven't had, you know, you listen to, to, to... some people's stories and the houses they've lived in and the hauntings that they've had and you know, mine seemed kind of pale in comparison. But one of my favorite stories actually is a story that um, Jeff Bellinger shared with us. And um, good guy, really, by the way, he's a good guy. It, what's that? He's a good guy. Oh, I love him, and I I love his work, and I, he's got great sense of humor, and he has this wonderful podcast about New England tales and and legends and. Um, he just he just really has a I love his point of view and his perspective in the world. And um and I always had and I had worked with him before kind of editing a, a little bit and, and just we had had some back and forth correspondence just as you do in the paranormal community. So I just approached him and asked him if he had any stories to share. And he ended up sharing this wonderful story that was his first true um paranormal experience, his first haunting that he had experienced, and it took place in the catacombs in Paris. And part of the reason, apart from the fact that I was totally honored that he was sharing this story that, you know, he it was his first experience, it kind of took him from the researcher and the investigator into the world of the believer, kind of tipped the scales for him. When he's telling it, he's a wonderful storyteller, but I had been in those same catacombs, and they're really creepy. I mean, they are, the the walls are lined with bones and skulls. It's basically this underground, if you can imagine being underground in Paris through a series of tunnels with essentially very little light, um, you enter it from this kind of random door. Someone has to tell you where it is because it's not well marked. It's not advertised as a museum. And it was during the plague and other times, Paris was just this teeming city. There was no room left to bury, and people were dying in massive, uh, massive numbers. And so uh, they were buried in these sort of more like an ossuary. And it, it's not like they're just scattered in there. They're actually quite artfully arranged, although there are a few places where there's just kind of piles of bones. So you can't really go into a place like that and not feel something. I know that when I was in there, I felt um, just very emotionally overwhelmed at the, 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 just the sheer number of people that were buried there or put to rest there, if you will. So his story, he's walking through the catacombs, kind of checking it out, and sees this figure walking toward him, and it's not, um, he thinks, he kind of moves aside, thinking this guy's going to go past him, and and then the he never goes past him, and he looks behind him, and he looks in front of him, and the person is, there. there is no person there. And he said that was kind of like his first really um, like true ghost sighting. And that always hmm. remained one of my favorites because um, of who told it to me and also the setting of the story. I could put myself right there because I had been there and I had certainly felt pretty um, some pretty strong emotions when I was there. And anyone who's uh, wandered those catacombs, and there are other places like that, like there's an ossuary in um, the Czech Republic that has a 
chandelier that's made all out of bones and people have been sort of laid to rest in these and they usually do sort of a decorative pattern with it and it was a way of I mean you know it's often the poor who are buried in that fashion of you know the the wealthy have the big obelisk in the middle of the cemetery and the poor and the indigent and the um, unidentified are the ones that are usually laid to rest in those kind of situations so what great work doing this what do you think of Ouija boards personally since you brought it up? <laughs> well, I know what you think of Ouija boards. Yes. Um, I really do not have an issue with them. I find them fascinating. I don't use them as much as I once did. I have had a couple of experiences with them that turned me off, and I, I really think it was my own irresponsibility um, using them. Uh, I did use a Ouija board alone on more than one occasion, which I, you know, I, mm. I have met many people who use it just like they use any other kind of tool, just like you might use a crystal ball or a pendulum or even tarot cards, that it's a, it's a means to sort of give us a physical manifestation of the spirit. Um, but I know that there's a lot more attached to the Ouija board than it's, it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, you know, it's just a board, it's just pressed cardboard and a planchet. Because there is something that really happens when you put your fingers on that planchet. And I've had, you know, experiences since I was a kid that, um, you know, because of course I was doing the Ouija board at an inappropriately young age. <laughs> so I had experiences from I was, when I was probably too young to really know what was what really could have happened with it um, up until more recent years. But I haven't used one lately, and um, I've actually, it's kind of, it's come up a few times. Um, I, I just, I think that like anything, I do think objects can be haunted and objects can hold energy, of yeah, course. Yeah, well, I do too. So I think that, there, there's probably bad boards out there, but I don't think we can judge all Ouija boards based on that. I think there's, you know, plenty of just, you know, benign ones that are just waiting for the right person to put their fingers on that planchet and get the message. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.